we've been looking, and we began last week, to look at this uh, fantastic character called Nehemiah in the Old Testament. We're talking about shaping your world. And uh, the topic today is um, begin with the end. Begin with the end. And I put in brackets, begin with the end in mind. Some of you might have read um, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And uh, the first habit, I think, is be proactive. And the second habit is this, begin with the end in mind. And uh, he says that to begin with the end in mind means to start um, with a really clear understanding of your destination. Where are you going to go? It's really important to be able to say, that's where I want to go. And if you don't know about that, that's going to be really difficult. When you know where you go... It's, it's a lot easier to understand where you are now because you've got a vision of where you want to be. And uh, so he talks a lot about that. And I've put it on this um, little picture here, as, as it, uh, called it the as is and the could be. Uh, all of us understand how things are at the moment, but we also have a vision of what could be uh, many times. In our office, uh, I've been working in the office for about seven years, and we've got a photocopier there. And, you know, for seven years, the most annoying thing about that photocopy is every time you want to do a copy, you have to um, actually select the, so- the size of paper, even though 99.9% of the time you use it out of tray one. Uh, but it doesn't somehow set that default. You have to push a button that sets that default. And I've got used to that, and uh, everybody who comes in to use the photocopy, you've got to tell them that. And it was really quite annoying. But we sort of put up with it for seven years. That's how it is. And I always thought in the back of my mind, I'm sure if I had a manual... I could look that up and actually set that default so that it actually was right. Anyway, Stuart Conkey the other day said to me, we really need to fix that. I said, yeah, it would be great. I said, we got used to how it is, but it would be great. Anyway, we couldn't find the book, but we Googled it, found the model of the machine, tried a few things, got deep into the recesses of the registries, and believe it or not, we fixed it. And now you put the paper in that just goes straight in and it copies. But you see, we would got used to the as-is. And we sort of, we'd, we'd almost forgotten to think about what could be. And that's probably a little example of how easy it is to become accustomed to the as-is, the status quo, and to, to become apathetic about what might be a better way. You know, Covey also says that it's incredibly easy in the busyness of our lives um, to work harder and harder at, at climbing the ladder of, of success only to find that the ladder's actually leaning against the wrong wall. And you've been climbing a ladder to somewhere and then when you reflect on it, you realise that actually um, the things that you really value are not the things that you've been uh, seeking after. And so you you find that some of the the victories and the successes you have seem really hollow and empty um, because they weren't the ones that are actually um, the ones that you really value most, like uh, relationships and family and people, uh, things that really count for eternity. You see, if the ladder's not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. And uh, that's not a good situation. So to begin with the end in mind is to um, keep the things that we value most deeply really clear and uh, then all of our decisions can be based on what we think uh, our values would lead us towards, what could be. You know, for followers of Jesus, we believe that despite... The, uh, the brokenness of our world, God has placed us here um, as a, a, to be a, a foretaste for people, like a glimpse into what the world would look like if Jesus was the king. Now that's the end, if you like, that could be, that followers of Jesus keep at the forefront of their mind. They want to begin with the end in mind, and the end is that people will see, by the way we live, 
something of what the kingdom of God looks like, what the world would look like if God, if Jesus was king. And so God's kingdom has come, we believe, in the coming of Jesus. And it's come in the transformation of the followers of Jesus. And it's going to ultimately come when God recreates and restores all things to how they should be in a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, followers of Jesus believe that they've got a really vital role to play in shaping God's world for good. And they see the as-is things, things that actually maybe grieve God's heart, uh, and they ask God for the ability to discern what could be. And, and they also ask him for the will to make it happen. And so Nehemiah in the story that we've, we're talking about today, he was a God follower. And uh, he wasn't satisfied with the as-is. Now, Troy gave you a little bit of the backstory last week. But if you weren't here, let me just um, give you this, this really heavy chart. And I won't take long on it. But uh, this might help you. Now, you don't need to know a lot to know uh, uh, some really important things about the history of Israel. Israel began as a, as, as a nation, um, they wanted kings. And so we know these names like Saul and David and Solomon. And so at that stage back here, up until 931 BC, the kingdom was united. But then it split in two. And over time, Israel, the northern kingdom, just disappeared because the Assyrians took them over um, and, and they were just scattered and disappeared. Then the southern kingdom of Judah down the bottom here, um, it survived along a bit longer. But in 586 BC, so there's three important dates, 931, 722, 586. Get those dates in your head. You've got the whole of the Old Testament sorted out. They're the big ones. But in 586, Jerusalem is destroyed by um, the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar. And people are deported uh, to Babylon and they go out into exile. And then when you look up there, 536, there's this... Guy called Cyrus, he was a Persian, and so the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persians, and Cyrus was a little bit more sympathetic, and people came to him, and he, he actually issue, issued an edict to say some of the people who'd been exiled uh, into Babylon, some of the, the people of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, the, the remainder of what we call Israel, they um, are able to return because they want to rebuild the temple, and he gives them permission to return. And so they go back and the temple is rebuilt. And so we come to the time now where, where Nehemiah is there. The temple's been rebuilt, but the city's all in ruins. And uh, Troy just gave us a, a terrific picture last week of the discomfort that Nehemiah was feeling. And uh, let's look at it. He was, he was uncomfortable about the as-is. He said, why are you looking so sad? This is when he goes into the presence of King Artaxerxes. To go into the presence of the king... Uh, he was the cupbearer to the king and he was meant to go into the presence of the king and he was meant to be happy and he'd been happy all the time. He must have been able to put on a happy face even when he wasn't feeling happy. But I think deliberately, after a period of time, he realised that he needed to do something about what he'd heard about was happening in Jerusalem, how that the walls were all broken down. And so he goes into the king and he looks sad and the king notices he looks sad and he says, why? You don't look sick, you must be deeply troubled. And he says, long live the king, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And so he comes to the king uh, and puts it on the line, really, because to be sad in the presence of the king could have been uh, a really negative thing for him. It could have cost him his life. And yet he fortunately finds, uh, I think God was in this, that the king is sympathetic. And so when the king says, what's wrong? He actually expresses a vision of what could be. He says, with a prayer to the God of heaven... So he knows this is his moment and he replies, if it please the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. 
and the king with the queen sitting beside him. So many think that this was a fairly informal time, uh, unusual for someone to be in the presence of the king uh, and the queen to be there. And so in, in this, he catches the king at a really good moment and uh, the king says, how long will you be gone when we return? And after I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. And so with significant assistance from the king, uh, Nehemiah goes. He's given leave of absence. He's also given letters to the uh, governors of this trans-Euphrates area to say, uh, when this guy Nehemiah and his, his uh, friends come through, you let them through, probably like visas to go all through the, through the territory. And then he says, he'd also like, he asked this of the king and the king grants it, would you give me letters to um, the, the keeper of the king's forests so that I can get all the timber I need to you know, build gates and, and build bits of wall and uh, build a house for myself when I get there? And the king grants all these requests. And so Nehemiah goes... Uh, and he goes with all of those things in his favour. He makes the journey and he arrives. He was uncomfortable with the as-is and uh, he had a vision of what could be and that was to see the city of Jerusalem with its walls restored so there was no longer a disgrace. Well, today we're going to talk about um, just what he does next and all of these um, verses that you're reading on the screen are either from chapter 1 or chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. You see, major projects require careful planning. I don't know about you, but um, I've enjoyed taking my uh, grandchildren through the period of the uh, building of Eastland. And if you go up there near the cinema level, there's this little window you can look out and you can see how it's progressing. Now, before they closed it off, you used to be able to go out on that cinema car park and look down. And that you're seeing there is just this massive hole that they dug. And it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper and just trucks going out and out with, with stuff. And... Uh, that at the back there is um, Marina Highway. So Eastland's right, the car park I suppose is going to be right down in there. It looks like about four storeys down. And I just couldn't believe how much was going on there. And as you look, there's little blokes running around. There's a lot of stuff happening. You think, that's not just happening by accident. There's actually a little bit of planning going on in there. Now, as, you, as, as time's gone on, you've got to look through this window. But you can see on this side, there's the old, and it sort of looks a bit raggedy. On this side, they're building the new, and somehow it's all going to join up. And I sit back as an ex-mechanical engineer, and I admire the civil engineers and the designers and the architects and the planners who have actually put some time into making all that work. It's just getting bigger and bigger. There's hundreds of people working all over the place, all sorts of different trades, all members at CFMEU, and somehow it's still coming together. Um, and quite an amazing project when you see uh, what's done there. And I, I think you and I would be foolish to think that that just happens, wouldn't we? It's happened because there's an enormous amount of planning that's gone on. You know, even on a smaller scale, we can see that when we do little projects at home. Projects usually come unstuck if we just start without any planning. I've done a few of those in my time. But just recently I did a kitchen about 12 months ago and it's one of these ones where you could actually plan the whole thing on the website and you could just put everything where you wanted it. You could see it in three dimensions. You could see what would look good, what wouldn't. And uh, it was fun. But before I ever went to the shop and bought the things, I'd planned it meticulously so that I knew what was going to be in every little spot. I didn't actually do a thing until that plan was complete. You know, the carpenter's rule is um, measure twice, cut once. I've got a brother-in-law who's a carpenter builder and uh, I've seen him at work and he's usually pretty good at that. Although I remember one time at my place he was measuring once and cutting many times. Um, but that was his rule, measure twice, cut once. 
You see, you've got to make sure that what you're wanting to achieve uh, is carefully planned. And, you know, Jesus, in the context of people choosing to follow him, says to his followers, be prepared to assess what it will cost you. And don't put up your hand to follow me if you're not prepared to pay what it costs. He talks about, you know, suppose a man builds a, wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate what it costs um, to see if you've got enough money to complete it? Or he says, if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone is going to see it and they'll ridicule you and you'll, they'll say, this person began to build and he wasn't able to finish. And, you know, that's what followers of Jesus do. When God asks us, when God asks us to trust him, when we enter a life that's, that's more than we could ever imagine, walking with Jesus, as Joel spoke about this morning, um, we realise that following Jesus also involves a cost. And Nehemiah knew exactly what he was going to have to ask of the people who were in Jerusalem. He knew that as he led them, his leadership would be a, a costly thing for them. And so his, uh, his approach was a measured approach. It wasn't a knee-jerk approach. I liked it in the, uh, the zoo movie. We bought a zoo. How when, he's, when uh, Benjamin is sitting down with his brother and his brother seems to have had all these knee-jerk reactions in his life to things that were obviously supposed to be money-making ventures but didn't end up that way. And Benjamin, in a very measured way, has worked out that the zoo's open, 75% of the revenue's in summer. He's obviously done his planning. Even though it seems like a bit of a knee-jerk thing for him, he's bought a zoo and he's not going in uh, blind. Why did he do it? Because he could. Why not? You see, as Nehemiah begins to rally the troops, his is a measured re- approach. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. And uh, he, he does some discreet and careful planning. It says this, he, he arrived in Jerusalem and he says, three days later, so he, just, he doesn't actually get, arrive in Jerusalem and say, hey, let's get all the, all the troops together. He arrives and three days later, he says, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I'd not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. And after dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. And so there's this sense in which Nehemiah isn't rushing into this. He's, uh, he's being careful. He's planning. He's thinking about just how big the job is, what it entails and how he's going to communicate it to people. If you look at this next little diagram, it's not the normal way we'd have it, but north's that way. The valley gate is where he goes out on this little secret reconnaissance mission. When, we, when you read the book later, you'll see all those little lines are all the people that he mobilises to do the work, but that's for another time. But he goes out that valley gate and he goes around the end to the dung gate and then he goes to the fountain gate and then he says, too much rubbish uh, to go anywhere. So he gets off his donkey, I imagine, and sort of heads up the valley there and then eventually comes back. And so when you look at that, he hasn't actually gone right around the wall. He's just looked at one section. Um, people think that this section was so broken down because all of the, the enemies of Israel would have invaded from the north that actually he was wanting to see the bits that were pretty good so that they wouldn't have to do much. Now, that's probably also borne out by the fact that, see the blue on that, that, person, that family, Hanan, who fixed that bit? They do a very, very long bit, which maybe suggests that it wasn't too, wasn't too broken down. But he does this little bit of reconnaissance. He looks and he sees what needs to be done. 
You know, he comes back and he says, the city officials didn't know I'd, I'd been out there. And they didn't know what I'd, I was doing because I hadn't said anything to anyone about my plans. I hadn't yet spoken to the Jewish leaders or the priests or the nobles or the officials or anyone else in the administration. So this was Nehemiah in his discreet way, making sure that before he actually laid it on people, he was pretty clear about what needed to be done himself. But then there's a call to action. And immediately after this, he says, Now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. Very, very simple call to action, isn't it? He basically says, this is our problem. You know very well what trouble we're in. He actually says this is our problem. Now that's the sign of a good leader, isn't it? Some of you are probably led under the leadership of leaders who just told you what to do. Um, This was a leader who said, we're going to do this together. This is our problem. Even though he'd been living a long way away from Jerusalem, he comes to Jerusalem and identifies with them and the problem that they've got there. This is our problem. We're in this together. As you read later on that diagram of the people who are doing particular work, in the next chapter there's these people from Tekoa that's called the Tekoites. And it sounds like they didn't have this attitude of wearing this together because it says uh, the Tekoites did this section of the wall but their nobles, uh, they wouldn't lift a finger. They were too big for it, too important for it. But Nehemiah says we're in this together. And he also makes uh, it clear to them that actually this is a big task. It's no, no small problem. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's a serious problem. And it would seem that the walls and the gates of the city had laid in, laid in ruins uh, since their destruction by Nebuchadnezzar some 130 years before. And like with my photocopier, people had become reconciled to that state of affairs. There'd been attempts to, to fix them, but probably it was a mixture of, of apathy and fear that stopped them from doing it. And so it took an outsider like Nehemiah to assess the, the situation and to rally the people to renew their efforts. He was a, a leader who actually inspired people and he helped them to honestly face the facts. Hey, this is no small problem. This is something big. We're going to really have to work together to make this happen. And then he says, let's fix it together. Let's fix it together. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. We need to get to work and I have a plan. It's a bit like Robert the Builder, isn't it? Or Bob, they call him. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. That was um, Nehemiah's approach. It's no small problem, but we can fix it and we can fix it together. And then the last little bit, I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. Can you just imagine them all sitting around as he told them that he'd had this vision uh, and he actually was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes and he went into the presence of Artaxerxes and he had a big ask and he asked that big ask and Artaxerxes actually obliged in every way and sent him with protection and resources and supplies. That's the God that I'm serving. And that God who's been faithful to me in getting me to this point, he's not going to abandon us now. I told him about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. So he's basically saying to them, we, let's fix it and I'm confident that we can. Past experience for many of us, and I, I love what Gonok said as he introduced the song, uh, Good, Good Father, uh, his experience of God as father 
helps him to realise that God is good and he's going to be good uh, all the time. I wonder if that's your experience of God, that God is good and that you, you can be confident that when you're seeking to shape your world for him, when you have a vision of something that he wants you to do, that he's not going to abandon you, he's not going to leave you helpless. He's going to give you the strength and the ability and the confidence and the encouragement and the motivation to do it. Nehemiah's confidence must have been an infectious confidence and uh, that encouraged and motivated the people. And we'll see next week that it wasn't an easy, easy job. Uh, it's, there's a glimpse of it in this passage. When Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, we'll hear about them some more, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously saying, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. And you know, I believe that as Joel uh, goes out to do something different, God has given him a vision for something that can make a difference in our world as Joel seeks to shape the world. Joel's just following on thousands and thousands of Christians over the years who've actually believed that the world shouldn't be as it is, that there's a, a, a better way, there's God's way, there's a way that honours the king and there's a way that can make a difference. And as Joel's got, Joel goes out, we'll be praying with him that God would use him to shape that part of the world where he is. And I don't know about you, but as I think about um, what Nehemiah did here, there's this sense of the, the fear and yet the fascination of a, of a God-given vision um, and on his part, a willingness to, to follow that vision, to boldly acknowledge the risks involved and the costs and then to share the vision with those who can make it happen and to challenge God's people to follow. An amazing job to mobilise uh, a ragtag group of people to build a wall. It was probably uh, three kilometres or more long around a city and they did it in a record amount of time. Uh, just quite a remarkable thing. A wall that was broken down and had been broken down for 130 years. Nehemiah does it because he sees that if that wall isn't built up, the name of God isn't going to be lifted up. The city of God is going to look like a disgrace among the nations. And Israel was meant to be that nation that displayed God's goodness and God's majesty to the nations. What a vision he had for what God could do through him as he mobilised others. As we, as we finish today and the guys are going to come up and they're going to sing part of that uh, beautiful song, Good, Good Father. And in the context of this, the God of heaven will help us succeed. As you think about what God might be placing on your heart, Choice challenged us last week to be even asking God to make us uncomfortable about the things that might be grieving the heart of God. I wonder if you've been asking God to give you a soft heart, a heart that's soft to the things that grieve his heart. You need to pray about that. And then you might need to think about your ladder. Maybe you're here today and you, you realise that actually your ladder's been leaning up against the wrong wall. You haven't been striving for things that are, are shaping God's world for good. They might have been shaping your world for success, but they haven't been shaping God's world for good. But as you think about the ladder... Maybe it is against the right wall, but you've got a, a perception of, of the, uh, the as-is, but you also would like to know, have a vision for where something could be because you've been praying about it and God's been putting on your heart.
I wonder if you might be able to identify just what that might be that God wants you to do. As you do, realise that planning isn't a bad thing. You know, there's some people, uh, followers of Jesus, who think that actually planning is, is a, not a spiritual thing. Just actually pray and God will make it all happen. You know, God's given us intelligence, God's given us abilities, and God wants us to use the abilities he's given us. And God chooses to use people like you and me to do his work. And so planning can be a really spiritual activity, an activity that honours God as we use the abilities he's given us to do the very best we can. And then finally... Maybe you're at that point where you've had a, a great idea, a great vision of what God might be able to do, but you can't do it on your own. And uh, that's the beauty of a church. That's the beauty of a body, a group of people, um, people who can mobilise others. I think about on, a, on an Engaged Sunday, that group of women who, who, and, and blokes too who sit in a room and sew because Michelle has mobilised them uh, to do something that, that God put on her heart. And I wonder if God's putting something on your heart that would make a difference in this world. Maybe you're at that point where you need to share it with somebody and maybe you do that today. Thanks, guys.